We are uh, continuing the study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 6 through 13. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting at verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship we kept working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we did not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Just a reminder before we go any further that in this chapter, Paul is speaking to those who are sincere believers and he's speaking about the wayward believers. So as you read these verses and you wonder why he changes pronouns, that's the reason. Some may read these verses and conclude that Paul is uh, maybe a bit or really too harsh with the weaker wayward Christians. After all, no one is perfect. No one is sinless. Everyone has at least one or two weaknesses. So why be so hard on them? Some may think Paul is insensitive and that he has no compassion or mercy for those in need regardless of the reason. After all, we read in 1 John 3.17, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide with him? We ran into this very idea when we first moved into uh, Brightmoor area, and we were at St. James Episcopal. I know we were at the uh, gym or at the Y before that. But at St. James, we had more folks who would come and ask for help who didn't want the kind of help we wanted to give, but wanted funds to uh, pay for their addictions. And there was some discussion amongst us as to whether we should just give them what they were asking for or we should be careful and uh, not just hand out money. I'm for not just handing out money and uh, so I promoted that amongst us. Maybe you thought I was insensitive or uncaring, but to me, when we just feed a person's addiction, we aren't doing them any good at all better we give them what is truly good for them. So some may think that Paul is uh, failing to love his neighbor as himself. They're needy. What matters the, the basis of the need, right? 
Well, given these things, today we're only going to look at verse 6. I read the whole portion because it needs a context. And in looking at verse 6, I'm urging you to consider looking at all these verses, not just verse 6, but the rest of them as we get to them, as a call to care more about the truth of God's word, to care more about the spiritual health of the church, to care more about the spiritual well-being of each individual in the church, and to care more about the testimony of the church in the community than about pleasing everyone or making sure no one feels bad about themselves. So try to keep that in mind as we look at verse 6 and then in subsequent weeks. Let's pray. Father, speak to us through these verses, specifically verse 6 today. Help us to see what we are needing to see or wise to see. Give us understanding beyond our current perspective. Help us to grow and mature in your ways. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a time and a culture where the com- we're commanding adults to do something that is in their best interest of the com- or in the best interest of the community is seen as an encroachment on their individual rights and personal freedom. I believe we've seen the truth of this recently and pretty vividly in some of the responses to the government's mandates about how to deal with the COVID virus. And I am not defending the government today. I'm just trying to help you see something about human nature, about our nature, those of us who are here today. This belief in our intrinsic right to personal freedom has infiltrated the church, in my opinion, so that should the pastor or the leadership command something of those in attendance, Their first option is to leave and go to a church that doesn't make such demands. We are, after all, Americans. We are the land of the free, and we believe in the right to that freedom. The reality is, with the exception of few conservative fundamental churches or denominations, or a pastor here or there that dominates the church. Churches in general don't make demands or commands of anybody in attendance. And really that includes us. And yet, should an adult family member or neighbor or church member stoop to pick up a poisonous snake, thinking it's harmless, who of us wouldn't shout... Don't touch that. And you would utter those words as a command, never thinking you were encroaching on their rights or personal freedom, but rather trying to save their life. And indeed, that is what you would be doing, trying to save their life, shouting them a command to not do something for their sake, their benefit their well-being, their good. And my guess is you would be shocked or in disbelief if they got upset with you for 
giving them this kind of command as if you're encroaching on their freedom to do as they please. Now, admittedly, not all authority is good authority, which is why we should be careful who we follow or submit to. And the reality is there are authorities who make self-serving, unreasonable, and unjust demands of those underneath them. And yet there are authorities who make demands for our good. And they command such things because they realize how important the situation is and that the right response is essential to a good outcome. This was the case with Paul in Thessalonica. He knew how vital it was to live according to God's word in order to become spiritually healthy, in order to grow in Christian maturity and to be God's light in the world. He understood that. And maybe not working isn't a big deal. In our current setting, there's a lot of people who aren't working by choice. Just as happening here in Thessalonica. But he used commands to achieve a good outcome. Not simply to rule. Not simply to be an authority. Not just to be the boss. But to achieve a good outcome. We also see that at least maybe the majority, I think we can say, of the Thessalonican believers, they obeyed Paul's commands. Probably because they believed God's way was the best way. They'd been taught that from the beginning. Hopefully because they valued their own spiritual health and the health of the church. And hopefully because they valued those things over exercising their own freedom. One of the things that seems to be implied further down in this chapter is that it's real possible not working was an issue before Paul ever got there with the gospel. It's real possible there was a segment of the population in that city that lived off of other people. In that culture, and not just that one city, but in that culture, in that area, there is a uh, there was a process called patronage. And a rich person would gain favor in the community by helping people. And if he helped you, you would be indebted to him so that he could come to you and uh, get you to do something for him later on. And that would be your patronage. That's how you would pay him back. And he could support you. He could provide food for you. He might get you into business. He might do a number of things. And wealthy people would have many patrons, many people that they supported because, again, that made them look better in the community. And, of course, people who wanted that kind of help would be attracted to those kind of folks that were willing to give it away. So I don't know exactly what was happening in Thessalonica, but it appears that this was possibly a problem before Paul ever got there. I want to ask a few questions before moving on. What value do you place on God's ways? What value do you place on your own spiritual health and the spiritual health of our church? How important are these things to you? 
Is your freedom to live as you please or deem best more important to you or less important than being guided or even commanded into godly living, into spiritual health, into Christian maturity? What do you value? And my encouragement to you is to consider that as we look at verse 6. Let me read verse 6 again to you, and then I want to talk about it. Now we command you, brethren, Paul writes, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. What I want to do with this is to present four principles that this verse presents to us and have us consider these four principles. So, these four principles begin with this one. The first one is modeled behavior. Modeled behavior, especially when repeated over a period of time, becomes an influential force in the lives of those who repeatedly observe or experience the modeled behavior. Principle number one. This is true in the church. It's true in your home. It's true in the workplace. It's true in the school. It's true in the neighborhood. Modeled behavior, especially when repeated over a period of time, becomes an influential force in the lives of those who repeatedly observe or experience the modeled behavior. The truth is, we all experience the influence of modeled behavior. None of us is exempt from that influence. And this is good when the modeled behavior is good and not so good when the behavior of those around us influences us to do what is unloving or ungodly, selfish, and therefore spiritually harmful. Paul clearly warns about the harmful effects of bad behavior on those around us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. And here's what Paul said. It's just a little statement stuck right there in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's the truth. Bad company corrupts good morals. Therefore, out of a legitimate concern for the modeling of ungodly behavior in the church, Paul commands the serious believers to keep away from every brother in Christ who leads an unruly life. And in giving this command, Paul establishes a principle for promoting and protecting the spiritual health of the church as a whole and for each individual in the church. Beware of modeled behavior. Move towards it when it's good. Move away from it when it's bad because it has the power to influence. The second principle Paul gives us in verse 6 concerns the use of ostracizing or what maybe in our day is more popularly called shunning. Shunning wayward Christians for the purpose of encouraging them to change their ways and for the purpose of discouraging the rest of the church 
not to follow their wayward behavior. Paul urged the use of this method, not only in Thessalonica, but also in Corinth and Rome. And I want to read you two passages of Scripture, one from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and the other from Romans chapter 16. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13, and this is just a small part of the discussion that Paul is having with the church. He's dealing with sin in the church, and he's talking to them about their behavior and how they're dealing with the sin in the church. And here's what he says to them. 1 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. When I wrote you about associating with immoral people, I didn't mean cloister yourself, go into a monastery, close the door, and stay away from the world. No, you got to live in the world. Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, he goes on to say, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That's called shunning. That's ostracizing. And then he says in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders, that is, unbelievers? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. And then he makes this kind of command-type statement at the very end of verse 13, Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Get the bad apple out of the bushel. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. Watch out for them. Be on the lookout for them and watch them. Don't just watch out for them. Watch them. Keep your eye on them and see how far they go and how much damage they do. Who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. And then he says this, turn away from them. Shun them. Avoid them. Possibly to reinforce his directive in 2 Thessalonians 3.6, which we're talking about today, Paul says further down in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, these words, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, and he's specifically talking about, at this point, everything he said from the beginning, but directly about working, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. And then he adds these words, and these are just as important. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. I think one of the major challenges for those carrying out this kind of church discipline is the attitude in which it's done. So Paul addresses this in verse 15, which I just read to you. He states it very clearly in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. And here's what he says there. And what I want you to see is the right attitude. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, doesn't matter what it is, 
any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted, that is, tempted to sin in how you deal with your sinning brother. In other words, our attitude toward the wayward Christian is to be governed by two things, according to this statement in Galatians, humility and gentleness. We are to go at this with a humble and gentle attitude, mindset. And the question is why? Why is humility and gentleness so important? I want to give you two reasons. First, ostracizing or shunning our wayward brother in Christ has as its purpose redemption, not punishment. This isn't to punish the sinner. It's to bring about redemption, if at all possible. We are not punishing the wayward believer. We are calling him back to, back to the word of God, back to the truth of the Christian life, back to living as we ought to live. And because of that, our attitude in carrying out such discipline must be that of humility and gentleness. Second, any amount of pride, any amount of pride in dealing with the wayward believer opens the door. Get that. It opens the door to sinning ourselves and how we deal with him or her. Or her. Be it an attitude of superiority or be it unkind or harsh words or unloving deeds. Any pride opens the door to a sinful response. So, what Paul is exhorting us here to do is use the method, shun, and I would acknowledge in our culture, in our day, shunning is not very effective because all you have to do is leave our group and go to another church. But, he's promoting shunning, but he's also saying, let us do it with humility and gentleness so that we come at it with the right attitude. The third principle that Paul presents is that church discipline is the responsibility of all the sincere believers in the church. It's our, not mine, it's our responsibility. Now it's true, church discipline is often led by the church leaders, and that's good. But it is to be carried out by all the sincere believers in the church. And I'm saying sincere believers because the wayward believers are not going to be carrying out church discipline against themselves. It's just not likely to happen. So, I believe in community. And I believe that a community works best when each member in the community does his or her part. When uh, we would get finished with a meal, when the boys were living with us, I would work at getting all of us, the boys, because Harvey did all the preparation and making of dinner, we would clean up and do the dishes. 
And I tried to sell them on the idea of community. I don't know if they bought it or not. But my goal was to sell them on the idea that if we all worked together as a community, we could get this job done in a less amount of time. And the fun was not in the work. I never implied to them that the fun was in the work. The fun was in doing it together. We could talk, tell stories, joke, whatever. We were together, and that's where the fun was. And a community works best when we work together. There is no question about it. Not in my mind, at least. And since the individual's spiritual health is essential to the overall spiritual health of the church, well... We all have a part in promoting and protecting that health. This is not just one person's job. It's our job as a group. The necessity of the community working together to ensure the spiritual health of the community, in my reading of the Bible, is first presented back in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Samuel is talking to all of Israel. This is the day they're going to anoint Saul king. And Samuel had to work this all out with God. He was pretty upset over this whole thing. And he was unhappy with Israel because they had wanted a king rather than keeping God as their ruler. Uh, And here he is on this day, and this is what he says to the nation. This is the first record of anybody in Scripture saying, look, the responsibility for the spiritual health of any community, any group, rests with everybody. And here's what Samuel said. Now, therefore, here is the king, Saul, whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for. And behold, the Lord has set a king over you, just as you've asked. Then he says this, verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him. Now, he's saying this to everybody, not just the king. He says to everybody. If you will fear the Lord and serve him, then, then what? Then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. Fear the Lord, serve him, listen to his voice, not rebel against the command of the Lord. When we do that as a group, And if we're going to do it as a group, we have to watch each other. We have to help each other. We have to be invested in each other's spiritual well-being. This is a community effort. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, and this is just one example, all seven letters uh, from there forward uh, talk about the community's responsibility in caring for the well-being of the church. But I'm just going to use the letter to the church in Ephesus. So Revelation 2, 1 to 7, God praises the church in Ephesus because they cannot tolerate evil men, and they have put to the test those who call themselves apostles. So in other words, this is not just the leadership, this is the whole church being invested. They put to the test those who call themselves apostles and those who weren't really apostles, they found them to be false. Point being, the whole church was involved in the spiritual health of the church. And that is the third principle 
that we get from verse 6. The fourth principle presented in verse 6 concerns the word of God. And the word of God, according to verse 6, and of course I can't imagine we all don't agree with this, but the word of God is the only dependable and unchanging standard for living godly in any setting or situation. In other words, godliness, waywardness, church discipline, those are the three issues here in verse 6. Godliness, waywardness, and church discipline are to be determined, measured, and evaluated by God's word. What godliness is, it's to be measured, evaluated, decided by the word of God. What waywardness is, It is to be evaluated, measured, and determined by the word of God. How we do church discipline, this too needs to come from the word of God. Now it's true, people's interpretations or explanations of scripture may change with the times. And we're in a day when there's some pretty different interpretations of scripture than I grew up with. But the scriptures themselves do not change. Interpretations of scriptures, our human understanding, the explanation we give, those things may change. But the reality is the word of God does not change. And it is my opinion that those who seek to understand the word of God and explain the word of God from a pure heart they will find the truth that was put there by those who wrote it. Some number of years ago, I found a book on my father's bookshelf. And I don't know why it caught my attention. I attribute it to God. Because uh, there was probably several hundred books in his bookshelf. But I pulled this book out, took it home and read it. And it was, for me, a real help in understanding the value of God's word and the value of godliness in understanding God's word. And the point is that this author was trying to make, and my personal experience is this is true. The more godly you become, the more you understand the word of God as it is meant to be understood as it is being communicated. So if you want to know what the word of God says, live up to what you know. And as you live up to what you know, more is revealed. And as you live up to what you know, more is revealed. And you you get a greater and greater understanding of God's word. Paul confirms in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 that all scripture is inspired by God. All scripture comes from God. Yes, Through the pen of men, there is no doubt about that. But all scripture is inspired by God, and therefore it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So once again, the word of God is the only dependable and unchanging standard for godly living in any setting or situation. Let us make it our aim to live by the word of God. 
to wrap all this up, I want to kind of step aside for a moment and bring in a, an issue that I'm not going to spend much time on, just mention it. Jesus appears to give church leaders room to decide what activities and behaviors best exemplify Christianity in their own time and community. The church in our own country in the 1900s did this when movies first came out. Christians somehow decided, I don't know if they met and and made agreements or what the deal was, but somehow there was a growing movement within the Church of Jesus Christ that Christians would not go to movies. Not because movies were inherently evil, but the decision to avoid movies, to not go to movies, was to not give money to the people who made these movies because the culture that made these movies was so decadent that they didn't want to financially support it. So it wasn't that movies themselves were evil. It was the people who made them live such ungodly lifestyles that it was the decision within the church not to give their money to these folks so that they could go on living this ungodly lifestyle. That would be an example of what Jesus appears to have done when he says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, and he's talking to Peter, and this is just a small statement, but this is a statement that has uh, received a lot of debate and discussion within the church over the years. Here's what he said to Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And the example I just gave you, the example of movies, in my opinion, would be an example of binding and loosing. Because this statement in here in Matthew uh, has been come has come to be known as the binding and loosing principle. And the church, in essence, bound going to movies. And it would appear that what Jesus is saying to Peter is, that's something that I will support. If they're going to bind that, I'll support that. If they're going to loose something else, I grew up in a home where it was totally non-alcoholic, not because they didn't want to drink, but because to my folks, alcohol was evil inherently. And uh, today there are many Christians who uh, drink uh, alcoholic beverages and there is no uh, arguing or disputing within the church over this issue. When we were part of the Alliance, one of the commitments that I had to make, I had to sign, was that I would not drink any alcoholic beverages as a um, ordained minister in the Christian Missionary Alliance. My point is, is that at one point in history, any alcoholic beverages in certain groups was seen as wrong. Some of those groups have changed. Again, I'm not supporting drinking alcohol or not supporting drinking alcohol. All I'm saying is that would be an example of loosing. Where we once said because of the culture or the need to what our light would be, the need to evangelize and be a testimony. We would avoid something. Now we're able to do it. Now all of these things need to be within the confines of the total word of God. 
That, to me, is important. But because of the time, we're not going to talk any more about that issue. But you might uh, look it up on your own if you want to investigate the whole binding and loosing issue yourself. The point of all this is, is that commands, in spite of our culture, in spite of our personal freedoms, in spite of what we think about authorities telling us what to do, Commands, demands within the body of Christ can and ought to be a good thing. When it's abused, that is just plain wrong. But that doesn't mean all commands, all demands are wrong. It can be a good thing. And we are wise to realize that and to work within that realm. Let me just reiterate the four principles and we'll quit. Modeled behavior, especially when repeated over a period of time, becomes an influential force in the lives of those who repeatedly observe or experience the modeled behavior. Secondly, second principle, the purpose of ostracizing or shunning wayward Christians is to encourage them to change their ways and discourage the rest of the church not to follow their waywardness. Third principle, according to the scriptures, though church discipline may be or ought to be led by the church leaders, it is to be carried out by all the sincere believers in the church. It's a community effort. And the last of the four principles, the word of God, is the only dependable and unchangeable standard for determining, measuring, and evaluating godliness, waywardness, and church discipline.